As a citizen, nothing is more rewarding than participating in our democratic process. With the midterms around the corner, I'm reminded of this opportunity that we have and our responsibility to all do our part. What I love about this season's sponsor, Act Blue, is that they help us in this endeavor, allowing everyone to contribute to the progress of our nation. ActBlue is the left's leading online fundraising platform, trusted by millions of small-dollar donors looking to give and make progressive change. They make it simple to participate from both the giving and receiving ends. Whether you're a grassroots donor looking to chip in or an organization looking for support, ActBlue's tools break down barriers to entry so more people can get involved and engaged. Let's do our part and commit to staying engaged now during the upcoming midterms and beyond. Go to actblue.com directory to find candidates and causes to give to. And to keep up with the latest in grassroots fundraising, follow ActBlue on Instagram at actblueorg and on Twitter and Facebook at actblue. Welcome to our season eight finale. We made it. And I'm so excited to end this season just like we started it with an absolute trailblazer and one of my sister presidents, Minnie Timaraju. Minnie is the president of NARAL. NARAL stands for the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws. Minnie is the first woman of color to run the organization and she's bringing a lifetime of knowledge and leadership to the office. Minnie knows the deal as well as I do. There are more women of color leading organizations than ever before, but that's not enough. So today we're laying it all out on the table. We're talking KBG, abortion rights across the country, what it means to be a leader today, and the decisions that will pave the way for trailblazers to come. There's no one else I'd rather tackle these topics with than many. I hope you enjoy this episode. Minnie, thank you for joining us today. Oh, so good to be here with you, Ashanti. And it's so nice to know LaFonz started the season and I'm ending it. That's pretty cool. And I love it because the three of us were just together a few weeks ago, yeah. you know, at a luncheon where we got honored, which was super cool. Just the fact that they were even able to have that lunch because there's so many women of color who are now leading all of these national organizations. And shout out to Tanya Lombard at AT&T and Power Rising, who brought us all together for this great lunch. And we're definitely going to dive into your time at NARAL. And you talked about being the first you know, Indian woman to lead NARAL and also being the first immigrant to lead NARAL as well. And we know that your family immigrated from India to New Jersey in 1973. And you actually talked about one of your earliest childhood memories being the hatred and harassment that you saw of Indian women who were wearing traditional Indian wardrobes. Yeah. How did that impact you at a young age and kind of lead you into having your voice and your activism where? You do so much for women. That's how I know you from in the women's space. 
that made you say, even at this young age, I need to start protecting women? Thank you so much for asking me that question. Um, yeah, so in nineteen, in the early 1970s, late 1960s and early 1970s, which is when my parents immigrated to the East Coast, to the New Jersey area, the New Jersey suburbs of Philadelphia, uh, which is funny because I live in Philadelphia now, there was a, a white supremacist gang, hate group, called the Dot Busters. And so I think you might, your audience might be familiar, you know, Hindu women wear a bindi on their forehead. And it's a religious symbol. Culturally, it usually signifies marriage. Uh, although in modern times, it's just like a cosmetic adornment to enhance a woman's beauty. Usually they can be color coordinated with your outfit and have like, you know, bedazzled, you know. So they're a source of cosmetics and pride. Um, Gwen Stefani wore them in No Doubt, kind of culturally appropriated them, but she looked cute mm-hmm. doing it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that another time. But when I was a kid, uh, I was like between three and five, there was this group called the Dot Busters that was attacking Indian Americans and Indian women um, in particular. And um, it was around the, on the heels of some of the horrible things that happened in the Asian American community, Vincent Chen, um, Japanese Americans being targeted because of things that were going on with auto workers in Detroit. Now and now today we have Stop Asian Hate, right? The Stop Asian Hate movement. So one of the things about our community as Asian Americans and immigrants, Indian Americans, is we're kind of always perceived as the perpetual foreigner. You know, no matter how many generations we've been here, they've been Indian Americans in this country since the late 1800s. You know, Chinese Americans helped build the railroads. You know, Japanese Americans have been here just as long, but it doesn't really matter how long we're here. Uh, When COVID happened, you know, it was like the Asian virus. And now we're seeing a spike in crime and attacks on Asian elders and Asian women, which is horrifying. So as a kid, for me, how it shaped me was I had this visceral feeling of otherness. I felt othered as a small child, Uh, even though I was growing up in a relatively diverse, integrated community in New Jersey, Cherry Hill, and I had friends of all faiths and backgrounds. I, at an early age, had a sense of otherness, and it helped me as I grew up connect to other people who had a sense of otherness. And it created in me a sense of empathy and solidarity with other communities of color, um, which my parents did not discourage. So as a result, I felt very much um, inspired to fight back the way I saw my parents and other folks in the community around me defend themselves and to say, hey, I'm here and I'm not going to hide. I'm going to be active in the community. I'm going to be, I'm going to run for office. I'm going to be engaged in the community. My parents were, you know, incredibly active culturally. They were members of all the community associations. They, they even hosted for a while, like Indian, Amer- Indian musicians from India to come to the United States. They'd live in our, they'd stay in our house for weeks at a time and do tours across the country. They were really like touch points for other. And, you know, we were earlier immigrants. There were many more who came after us. My parents became kind of elders and touch points for others in the community to be proud of who they are, not to hide, to educate their kids on their culture. And for me, um, I think it explains a lot of my innate solidarity to other communities and marginalized groups, because even though we were privileged, you know, my father came here as an engineer and my mother had a graduate degree. We still felt connected to other groups who had been othered or who'd been made to feel less than. And so we always had a strong social justice lens running through all of the work we did as a community. Um, And that honestly started in India. My parents, my grandparents were very active. They were activists, fought for Indian independence, which only happened in the late 40s. So that experience as a kid 
it's so important. And I think it connects what's really depressing, much like reproductive rights, uh, is that it's not over, right? We keep yeah. fighting generation after generation to say we're here, we belong, we're Americans, and yet we're still having that same fight. It's kind of like reproductive rights. It's like voting rights. It's like civil rights. We can't take our rights for granted. We have to mm -hmm. constantly be defending them and justifying them, right, in this country. And so the long arc of justice being what it is, uh, we I learned that lesson early. And I'm, I'm glad you asked me about it because it's something that I still really struggle with. I still really struggle with those memories. Absolutely. I know you have them. I have them. So many of our listeners have them. And it shapes our identity and also the work that we do. And last time I saw you, we knew that we were about to have the Supreme Court hearings coming up. We're in it now. You they know, we're crazy. recording this. We're recording this on day four. So I want to get your thoughts on the hearings. But also when I saw you, you had gotten news that day that a whole bunch of anti-abortion groups were planning to pour money into making sure that Judge Jackson didn't get confirmed. And while I was like so angry, I still wasn't surprised no. that they would try to pull this and of course, pull out all the stops for the black woman. So, And now we're seeing it in action. But um, look, this is a moment of joy. And, you know, we as women of color, but particularly black women, you know, you as black women and your allies, us, we deserve a moment of joy and celebration. I mean, it's been a long damn fight since from Anita Hill to now, and we deserve this. She deserves it. She deserved uh, much better than she got, uh, but she has proven to be the incredibly, you know, skilled, art you know, I was going to say articulate, which is a terrible thing to say, but, you know, skilled, uh, thoughtful, judicial temperament, hyper overqualified, of course, Deeply, deeply, deeply skilled at answering insane questions oh that have goodness, nothing like... to do with her <laughs> subject matter of being on the court. Um, really good at deflecting and also really good at appealing to the empathy of all of us as moms. I really appreciated her comments about motherhood. I really appreciated her comments about her partner. Can I say, like, I really appreciated her partner um, being there <laughs> oh and like God. tearing up over and over and over again? Like, look, you see two, two types. You've got like, Sonia Sotomayor, who's on the court and who's single. And I think, I don't know, is Lena Kagan married? She might not be married either. I don't think so. But then you have the Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the, you know, who, whose her husband was famously, like famously supportive, you know, right. like for his generation, even more so, like, you know, took turns in parenting, like put her first, you know, emphasized her career, like really was her biggest cheerleader and her biggest fan. And we, we even see that in other industries like Dolly Parton, like her husband. It's not required. Unfortunately for women, especially for feminists who are successful, many of us have had to be, to be successful, we've had to be unencumbered of husbands and children, let's be candid, or wives and children or partners in general, right? I don't want to be binary about it. But when it is successful, it's generally because you have a partner who says, I'm going to prioritize the marriage and I'm going to like either take turns or uplift my partner. Right. Uh, and I think you see that with Vice President Harris. He took his entire career and said, I'm, you know what? I'm putting this aside. I'm going to follow her. And I think that's for me and my marriage, it's about taking turns. And so going back to Judge Jackson, you can tell that her partner was like 
deeply, deeply, deeply moved by his wife and her accomplishments. You know, he deserves that. His kids deserve that. She deserves that. So look, I mean, as a reproductive rights movement, just shifting gears to like, you know, my role, we could not be more thrilled to be allies and supporters in this moment for Judge Jackson for many reasons. The court has been stacked with a supermajority of extremists thanks to Trump. You and I met in 2016 when I was working for Secretary Clinton's presidential campaign. Could we have even imagined the damage that one term of that presidency has wrought on our country? Um, We are about to lose our constitutional right to access abortion because of this court. Will Judge Jackson be confirmed in time to make a difference in that case? No, she will unfortunately not. But this is a long fight. And just like I started talking about how it's a constant fight, we can't ever underestimate our rights. It's a constant struggle. She's step one towards reshaping the court back to a sensible, moderate court, reshaping the court to be one that really looks like the rest of the country, that really reflects all of our values. So she's going to be our first chance to reshape uh, the future of the court. And we want this. It's an important, powerful lesson for our base that this is the difference between, for folks who say, for our base to be celebrated and excited and to see a big win, because God knows we need a win right now. But also for folks who are on the sidelines who say there's no difference between Democrats and Republicans. There is a difference. Look at those three that Trump nominated and put on the court and look at her. Head and shoulders more qualified than any of the other justices. All of them. We, we see it with the little graphs and charts. That's right. And this is what you get when you like Democrats. You get a president who lives up to his word. He said he would appoint a black woman to the court. And he didn't just pick a black woman. He picked the most overqualified black woman that he could pick uh, out of a slate of incredibly qualified black women. And then, of course, all the other judicial nominations. And I know that's work you're doing a lot of as well, like all the other judicial nominations they've managed to uh, the most diverse, the most aggressive pipeline of folks for future courts. So this is what happens when we elect Democrats. This is why it's so important to be standing together. And she's got a great record on reproductive freedom. She's not an activist. We don't want her to be but she's got a strong background of upholding precedent. So we're excited about her profile. We're excited about the history, but we're also excited about the fact that, you know, we can beat ourselves up about Trump or we can move towards the future and fix it. And this is how we start fixing the damage and the trauma that this country has gone through. And unfortunately, it's on the backs of Black women again, but we are grateful. We are grateful to Judge Jackson for for doing this and accepting this nomination. We're going to see it through. We'll be back after a word from our sponsor. Okay, friends, we've been talking a lot about reproductive freedom today, and I love it. At the end of the day, everybody should have the freedom to make their own choices about if, when, and how to raise a family. So it's no coincidence that the politicians who are attacking reproductive health care are often the same people who are also attacking our freedom to vote. Whether it's access to abortion care or access to the ballot box, these attacks accomplish the same goal, limiting our ability to determine our lives and teachers. An overwhelming majority of Americans support Roe versus Wade and legal access to abortion care, plain and simple. But unless those same Americans are able to make their voices heard, and have their votes counted, those same values won't be reflected in the leaders they elect. 
anti-choice politicians have realized that the easiest way to win elections is not to change their unpopular positions and policies, but rather to restrict who gets to vote in the first place. Luckily for us, voting rights advocates aren't going to let that fly. Verified Action is working to protect our freedom to vote and therefore our ability to elect leaders who share our commitment to reproductive freedom. Visit verifiedaction.com to learn how you can get involved and support their efforts during this critical election year. I also just want to touch on some of the moments throughout the hearing where I think us as women of color, we understand some of those sighs, like some of those smiles that she makes, you know, the pauses to be thoughtful. But there was a moment with Senator Cory Booker where he talked about joy and, you know, how God put her there and she started to tear up. And some people were like, she shouldn't have cried. But I think all of us know what those tears were, you know, just to have someone see you in that moment and acknowledge that you deserve to be there. You have every right to be there because after three days of attacks, I understood why she got emotional. I've had those times where I've gotten emotional being in these spaces and just someone saying, hey, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. And we're, and we want you there and you belong there yeah. and you deserve to be there. Yeah. You know, I was, I was on a team meeting with my, my senior team this morning and we were talking about like, fun folks to invite to staff to give pep talk to our teams because it's going to be a rough cycle and we were brainstorming uh, and everyone was like Cory Booker Cory Booker like he's the he's like the inspirational speaker in chief he's like the pep talk giver extraordinaire he's first of all just an amazing advocate for us and for NARAL and for reproductive rights and for many of us but more importantly he's just a deeply empathetic person And it was like, he could just see in that moment, he needed to be like, sis, like, I see you. I've got your back. I'm looking right at you. Like, this is just you and me here. It's almost like a coach. I almost felt like it was like a scene, like at a Rocky, like where, you know, he and his coach are in the, they're they're hunkered down in the, in the corner and they're having that talk. Like, don't block out all this other lunacy. It's you and me and you, you need to be there. We need you there. We want you there. We celebrate you. You have a God-given right and talent to be there. But let's talk about the lunatics. Lindsey Graham, what is wrong with you? The fact that Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, Marsha Blackburn, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, the fact that they could get away with being so deeply disrespectful and uncivil to a jurist who cares about her partisanship or who nominated her is absolutely unacceptable. And we need to be amplifying the heck out of that, not the attacks on her, but the outrageous behavior Because again, this is a stark reminder of, is this the country you want? Are these the people Mm -hmm. you want leading your country? This is the difference between Democratic senators and Republican senators. It was like Mm -hmm. night and day. It was was was. incredible to see it. The theatrics. And then there's the photo of Ted Cruz after he finished doing his crazy. He was on Twitter. Checking his mention, seeing what people were saying well, about him. I hope him. you saw that he got Ibram Kendi's children's book to go back to number one. Like, sir, you're out here like promoting that how bad baby. Like, literally, I was texting my friends who just had kids, and I was like, "You got this book for the baby? Let me buy this book for the baby." 
I already have two copies. I have a feeling I'm getting five or six more in the mail this week. Like now, whenever my friends have a baby, that book is going in the baby shower bag, you know, because I want to make sure that they have it. It was a clown show and they're clowns. But in all seriousness, they are very powerful people and they have the ability to disrupt our lives and our rights. And, you know, I I saw something on social media this morning and I need to verify it. This is just something I saw on social media and my team will probably be like, ah, don't say stuff like that. We need to fact check it. Somebody posted that confirmation hearings only started when the first Jewish jurist was appointed to the court. That when it was all white male Christian appointees or nominees, they never had confirmation hearings. It was a recent phenomenon in history. I would totally believe it because we know that when it comes to non-Christian men in these public spaces, all of a sudden the rules change. I mean, I don't even know if Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have been able to get through the current Senate. Like, it's it's a mess. It's just... Sandra Day O'Connor would have been too radical for them. She was a moderate who followed precedent. So we're we're in bizarro land times. We're in like the upside down. But it's also why like two years of a Democratic administration isn't enough. We got to get Joe and Kamala reelected. We've got to hold this house. We've got to pick up two more seats in the Senate so we can get past this filibuster. So that's what we're focused on right now. You know, we we've been getting more involved in a lot of the democracy issues uh, alongside a lot of organizations like yours. And we want to really make sure we win back and we, we hold the Senate, but we pick up seats so that we have a chance to really pass things like voting rights, the Women's Health Protection Act. Uh, the cornerstone things, because we can't count on the court anytime soon to protect our fundamental constitutional rights. We have to count on Congress, which is a scary prospect with the current Congress. And we just can never be asleep at the wheel. We have to always be vigilant and active in every election. And I know you, your listeners know that because of the work you do at Emerge, down ballot. I mean, every one of these races matters now. We saw what a brief one-term president could do. And it's going to take decades to fix the damage. It is. And we know right now a lot of people aren't energized. No, they're depressed. They think we're going to lose. I'm hearing it from donors. Let's be candid. I'm hearing it from, you know, allies. We're going to lose the midterms. Like, well, we will if people think that way. Exactly. And let's not even just focus on Congress. We know the state and local level has so much impact on our day-to-day lives. Our listeners, I know you're like, oh, there goes Ashanti saying that again. But I say it because it's so true because a lot of these attacks start at the state and local level and make their way up to the Supreme Court. So just tell our listeners, what are some of the things that they should be paying attention to in their communities when it comes to protecting reproductive freedom? Because it is at risk. This this is not a joke. It is real. I encourage you to look at the maps that, you know, Guttmacher Institute and the Center for Reproductive Rights and reports we've put out. There are 28 states poised to ban abortion. So this is state level action. The case pending in the Supreme Court that we're expecting to hear a decision about mid to late June is Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization, which is litigation around Mississippi's 15 week abortion ban. So. Obviously, it was a Mississippi ban that made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, Subsequent to the Supreme Court taking up that case, states have been just going nuts, right and left, filing abortion bans and abortion restriction bills. So what you should be doing if you're listening and you're worried about reproductive rights, 
is checking your state. You know, is your state one of the 28 states poised to ban abortion, depending on what happens with the court? We fully expect the court to uphold the Jackson, Mississippi case. Uh, that means they will have effectively gutted Roe v. Wade and overturned Roe v. Wade. They may say, they may not come right out and say we're overturning Roe v. Wade, but a 15-week abortion ban being upheld by this court would completely undermine the basis of Roe v. Wade. And we don't even have to wait till June. If you're in Texas, it's already happened to you. If you're in Idaho, it just happened. Uh, the bans in those states are even more egregious and more nefarious because they are vigilante style bans that allow private citizens to report on other citizens potentially having an abortion, which is, which is bananas. What? I'm just like it's dystopian. It's crazy. And there's many, many more states that are trying to do the same thing. So we're seeing just a myriad of types of abortion bans and restrictions across the country, even attempts to restrict citizens from leaving the state to have an abortion. We've banned it in our state. Now we don't want you to leave the state to have an abortion. Or we've banned it in our state, but we don't want you to get access to medication abortion through the mail, um, which is really punitive. It really tells you who these people are, frankly. They don't care about reproductive health. They don't care about quality of life. They care about punishment. They care about retribution. It's really, it's really disturbing. Um, and it goes hand in glove with the attacks on trans kids and gay kids, uh, and our kids in general. So you can't really say it's about kids anymore either, really about children. But if you're in one of these states, you need to be paying close attention to where you live, who your state representative is, have they been endorsed by Emerge, putting a plug in for Emerge? Because if they were, they're, they're a champion for reproductive rights and justice and freedom. Um, and if they're not, uh, you need to be paying close attention to see if one of these bills is moving through your legislature. Or are you in a state that has a trigger ban? That means something that's already on the books that says, should Roe fall? we immediately ban abortion. There are 12 states that have that uh, already codified. So I think a lot of folks are sleeping on this news. Um, there's a little bit of a believability challenge with the American public. They think, oh, this is, a, this is a constitutional right. It's been a very long time in this country since a massive population of people have lost a fundamental constitutional freedom. I want yeah. to say the last time it happened was the Reconstruction. So people don't believe it. It's really, really hard to convince people this is happening in real time, even though it's happening mm -hmm. right now in Texas. Like the court's going to fix it. They're going to moderate it. And then there's also a lot of misunderstanding. Like, oh, 15 weeks may not seem that scary. But unless you're a pregnant person who's living this experience, you know that in a blink mm -hmm. of an eye, you can go from not pregnant to 15 weeks, right? Mm -hmm. None of us walk in the shoes of any of the pregnant people in this country and the myriad of decisions they have to make in their lives. So it's important to understand any restriction on access to abortion at any stage of the pregnancy is bad. It's problematic. Mm -hmm. It's putting a restriction on the person to make the decision they need to make about their own body and their own life. And we've got all the evidence to show that it's just the tipping point. It's just the opening salvo. I mean, they don't stop at 15-week bans. No one is stopping. The Texas ban is six weeks. Most people have it's no just... idea they're pregnant in six weeks. Those are the things you should be paying attention to in your state. Like, look at the map. We'll, we'll send some easy to access things for you to look at. Are you in one of these states? Pay attention to your local news. Follow the right folks on social media. You can follow us at NARAL, at N-A-R-A-L. Uh, we're posting the latest on all of the bad bills that are popping up throughout the country. Uh, we have a great state policy team that's tracking everything. And it's been really hard. We just added two new people to the team because that's how crazy the state legislative bans are becoming and how fast and furious they're coming at us. So it is all local. It is all local. And that is the only way for us to fight back. Minnie, I could talk to you forever. We're going to have to have you back on. But I do want to ask you one final question. 
You are amazing. You are accomplished. You are a trailblazer. What is one of the key lessons learned you would like to share with the BGG audience? So my answer to this kind of question in the past used to be follow your bliss. And it still sort of is follow your bliss. Don't get distracted, you know, when you're thinking about what you want to do with your life and your career, with your, you know, your personal like choices for partners, like kids or no kids. Do the things that make you happy and that you love because then, you know, it doesn't feel like work. I'll amend it a little bit because it still does feel like work. Like I do something I really love and I'm not going to lie to you right now. It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. So I would amend it by saying, follow your bliss and make sure you're surrounded by the right people. Be really Mm -hmm. intentional about who you surround yourself with. And it was Judge Jackson's hearings this week that really underscored it to me. You know, she didn't just have her husband and her kids. She had her best friend Mm -hmm. introduce her. She has all these amazing, powerful black women around her. And I was like, that is a life well lived. Mm-hmm. And that is how she became successful. She didn't become successful by being the only black woman in her world. You know, she didn't become successful right. by being like, I'm the trailblazer and then I'm closing the door behind me. Clearly, this is a woman who has a circle, who has a sisterhood, who relied on that sisterhood to rise up and to be powerful and successful. And I'm grateful that I have that. And I realize, realize every day that there's no way I would have become like the first woman of color and immigrant former immigrant to become the head of a legacy reproductive rights organization that had people like Shirley Chisholm on the board uh, 50 years old. How would I get to this point in my career? Only because of the sisterhood around me that pushed me, encouraged me and said, you can do this. You should do this. It was hundred percent the women in my life who, who pushed me to do this. And I'm grateful to them every day. So follow your bliss, but also make sure you have people around you who see you going back full circle, mm-hmm. who see you who see you and uplift you, especially when you're having those down days, because there's a lot of it in this fight, right? Mm-hmm. There is everything you said resonated with me so much. Minnie, thank you for everything. Listeners will have all the links in the notes of the pod so you can keep up with the great work that Minnie and the NARAL team is doing to ensure that we do not lose any of our constitutional rights around reproductive justice. Thank you, Minnie. Thank you, my friend. I'll see you soon. I hope you all enjoyed the lessons learned from this season. I know I always love hearing the advice from all of our amazing guests. Always negotiate from a position of power. No matter the situation, it is always a negotiation. I mean, if you don't keep learning, then what's the point in living? You can make a mistake and recover. And that acknowledging that you've made a mistake is actually a strength. Be deliberate about your intention. Being thoughtful about the change that you seek to make. People will try to distract you from your message, from what your vision is, from what your mission is. But the important thing is for you to always stay on your message. Is that you can actually take a beat and think about it before you say it out loud. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta have fun. Follow your bliss, but also make sure you have people around you who see you and uplift you. I wanna end this episode with one more piece of advice and lesson learned something that we heard from our new Supreme Court Justice, 
Ketanji Brown Jackson. If you watched her hearings, you heard the moment when she talked about being on Harvard's campus and an unknown Black woman who passed by her told her to persevere. That is what we do every day as Black and Brown women in politics. We persevere. I hope you all have enjoyed this season, and I look forward to seeing you next season when we'll have more incredible guests. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, you can find us at www.thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network, and you can find them at wondermianetwork.com. That's our finale for our Trailblazer season. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from these truly incredible women and learned a thing or two from the lessons that they've shared. Until next season, Brown Girls. Hey, BGG fam. We have another podcast we think you would like from a fellow Brown Girl. If you want to learn how you can fix this broken world, check out Art of Power a new kind of leadership podcast from WBEZ Chicago. Each week, award-winning journalist and best-selling author, Arthi Shahani, interviews fascinating people from all walks of life who've turned their passion into real-world impact. She focuses on outsiders, like herself, people who are excluded, who were told that they don't belong, but who broke through anyway. Her guests are household names like President Barack Obama and names you don't know but should, like Gabby Pacheco, the dream activist who cornered Obama into action. No question is off limits. Arthi takes you through intimate and unexpected conversations. That's her superpower. What's yours? Listen to Art of Power today wherever you get your podcast. I'm Anita Hill. You probably know me, or think you do. In the past 60 years, I've seen massive social gains for women and people of color. I've been at the forefront. Here's the thing. This progress didn't happen by chance. It was made. Made by hard work, sometimes life-threatening work. And it was made by everyday people making everyday choices. But... There are still social inequalities that keep me up at night. My new podcast, Getting Even, is about equality and what it takes to get there. We're reflecting on how we looked outside the lines, broke the rules, and forged our own paths to equality. Listen to Getting Even on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Listen.